Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as mm-hmm. soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online, and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough, and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then, and you're re- Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? I got an interesting email this week from somebody who said, Carol, can't I manage this addiction by creating my own program and allowing myself to participate in activities that I think are safe? So, of course, I had to say to him, what are those safe activities? And he said, "Um, you know, I go to massage parlors, I go to prostitutes, I have affairs, but my drug of choice is not pornography or masturbation. I'd like to do that. And I said to him, you're not treating sexual addiction like a brain disorder. Sexual addiction is a brain dysfunctional disorder. It means, truly, you have to dim down the light, dim them down all the way so that you can create new neurocircuitry in the brain. And you know what? I've never met a man who's been able to look at pornography and not objectify women. And that objectification is exactly what happens when somebody is seeing a prostitute, going to massage parlor, having an affair. So they're all the same things, even if they look very different. So my answer to him was, no, you cannot view pornography. I mean, I would love to say, oh, yeah, go ahead, do it. But you know what? That does not do anything for the brain science that says he's keeping an open door in his brain available to act out again. You see, Son, 
in the brain, what will happen is that before you know it, you go back to old behaviors. So it's not like I'm punishing you, and it's certainly not like I am being prudish. But if you're a sex addict, my experience is that you cannot look at pornography ever, not even with your wife, and you really shouldn't masturbate because when you masturbate, you also think about objectification of women, which is the very ingredient that takes you to taking advantage of other situations. I hope you understand that. I hope you can recognize that that is the gateway, the pathway, the neuro pathway to keeping sexual addiction alive. Again, are there some people that can look at pornography and not be addicted? 100% there is. Do I agree with that? Well, guys, as a as a that, I'm supposed to remain porn neutral. And this is my show, so I can tell you like it is. It is bad. It's unhealthy. It objectifies women. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna endorse it. I'm not gonna stay porn neutral when I think it is an unhealthy habit. So there you have it. In some ways. I have violated um, the theory, the philosophy of the accreditation and certification school that I I learned from. But I have a I have a right to be different. I have a right to say no. I don't buy it at all. And I hope you'll appreciate the fact that I have my feelings, even if there are others that don't. Because I'm only saying that for you. I'm saying that for you. I'm saying that for our society. And guess what? I'm saying it for kids that have no idea how addictive pornography is. Uh, In a few weeks, we've got Gail Dines coming on the show. And whoa, she is the guru for how pornography affects children's brains. So I can't wait to have her on the show. And, you know, again, I just want you to know that I'm, I have your back. I'm trying to help you create habits that are healthy. And that's why I really work hard at being honest, open, and authentic, just in the same way as I ask you to do. And, you know, that's what the show's all about. I interview guests who have made it their mission to share their point of view. Now, tonight, I have a woman who shares her own poetic manifesto, art therapy, and creative art in a way that promotes healing. She actually wrote this um, poem called Intimacy Anorexia Widow. And I was so taken aback by it that I reached out to her and I said, I want to have you on the show because you speak for partners everywhere. And then I found out she was one of us. She was an abstract. 
Now, most of you know I'm a CSAT. I've been certified to be a sexual addictions therapist through ITAP. That's Patrick Carnes Group. And I'm an access. I'm certified to, to provide partner-sensitive treatment as a clinician to partners. And AppSats.org is this amazing organization that was started when sex acts were getting a lot of help, but partners were not. And, and um, I'm proud to be a part of both of those organizations. They're the highest and finest uh, instructional organizations in the world. And so the Anorexia Widow is a creative poet poetic response to a collective issue many partners face. You know, what we know about partners is oftentimes they have emotional, physical, sexual, and spiritual needs that go unmet, especially in their marriage. Now, we always say that sexual addiction, more often times than not, is an intimacy disorder meaning that when you participate in sexual addiction, it's all about you. There is no longer a partnership with your partner. And so I am so happy to be talking to this creator of Intimacy Anorexia. And she definitely feels like she was a widow. She's going to talk a lot about her own background, and the things that allowed her to heal. If you're a partner, stay tuned. You're going to love this. And if you're an addict, I want you to stay open to the fact that there are certain things that your wife needs to do to create the intimacy that you can't give her right now. Now, what I do believe to be true is that more than likely, you can Provide her those things if you work with a trained therapist that knows how to teach you relational skills. I always say that men aren't the best at that anyway, but if you've been an addict, you have really dumbed down your ability to connect. You didn't mean to do it. It's a byproduct of the addiction. And so we're going to be talking about that too, as well as how partners can get her or his depending on who is the partner, how they can get her needs met so that they can find connection in all sorts of ways. So I have to tell you, I am so happy to be talking about this today because a lot of people go, anorexia, how could that possibly have to do with sex or relationships? That's about eating disorders. That's about starving yourself. That's about not getting the proper nutrients, vitamins, or food to build the body. Well, hey, we're going to be talking about the ingredients you need to feel whole and what it's like to be in relationship with somebody who can't give you what you need. How does that end up making you feel? And more importantly, what can you do to change that situation? I'm Carol the Coach. This is Sex Health with Carol the Coach, and welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm just listening. Excellent. So you are listening to the show. Do you have a question? No. 
All right. Well, I appreciate that you are listening, and stay tuned as we continue to talk about how important it is to develop the muscle you need to get your own needs met. Now, many of you may not know, but I am a big believer in six needs that are imperative to making your life better. And those six needs are the social, the emotional, the intellectual, the spiritual, and, of course, the purposeful. And I have a format that says, you know what, you should be able to meet each one of those needs in at least five ways. And if you're really growing and being healthy, you need to be able to, and I want you to know that, you need to be able to continue to progress and grow. And so let me give you an idea of what that may look like. Cheryl, the coach here, um, has physical needs. I have to take my vitamins. I have to take my medicine. I have to get enough sleep, which I don't, so that's one i got to be working on. I have to exercise. Not only does it manage my anxiety, but it helps me feel good about myself. So that's some physical needs that have to be met. I also know that physically, I not only have to build my muscles, but I have to build my cardiovascular strength. So I power walk. I did rollerblade until I bit the dust for the last time this summer. You know, I've been doing 25 miles a weekend forever, absolutely forever. And this summer, on it was going to be 103 degrees out, and I said, okay, i got to get out early. I'm working a few hours, and I'm going to get out early, and I'm going to blade. And I don't know what happened. Something got caught in one of my blades, and I not only fell to the ground, but I dove into the pavement, breaking my sunglasses into my face, requiring 19 stitches. I got the stitches. By the way, I look just fine. But I got the stitches, and I said, you know what, Carol? You're 62 going on 15. Bones don't believe that. You're 62 years old, and you probably need to take better care of your bones. And as a result, what I knew to be true was that I needed to give it up. And it was something I absolutely loved. But I didn't focus on that I was not getting that need met. I said, okay, that's the end of an era, and you're going to have to find other safer ways of exercising. And so I power walk, I paddleboard, I work out with weights. That's how I meet my physical needs. Now, what are two more ways that I could meet it? Well, I could get better sleep for sure. I know that I can get better sleep because that's really at the foundation of good physical and mental health. So that's one thing that I'm going to continue to work on. How about my emotional needs? Well, you've heard me say it before, 
it is very important to know how you feel, to identify whether you're angry, feeling sad, feeling anxious, you know, feeling lonely, or feeling happy. So every day, you should be able to identify your primary feeling, and that's how you can deal with emotional needs. Now, I've got Beth, who's on the line, and she's going to be talking about what she recommends for partners, because truly, when you've experienced intimacy anorexia, you've got to readjust and decide how you can take care of yourself. So, Beth, welcome to the show. Hi. I actually go by Elizabeth. (laughs) Hi, how are you doing? I am doing well, and thank you for correcting me. So, tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write The Intimacy Anorexia Widow? You know, I was laying there one night. It was maybe 15 days after I'd had surgery. And I literally woke up and the line, Intimacy Anorexia Widow, just popped into my head in the middle of the night. And, um, you know, I recently saw an interview with Jay-Z and um, David Letterman where he talked about sometimes – when you're a writer, sometimes things just kind of write themselves. Um, and other uh-huh. times you might work on it for a month. And that was this situation. I wrote a couple lines down, fell back to sleep. And then the next day, it was literally like this, this desire just was coming out of me, needed to be written down. So later that day, I sat down 20 minutes, I wrote it, and it was done. I almost had no edits out of it. And it was so powerful, and I read it to three different women, uh, partner friends of mine, who all cried, every single one. And they said, you've got to get this out. You have to post this on YouTube. You've got to get this out. Um, Because I was speaking to the women who've experienced this and maybe never had a word for it before. So that's where it all came from. I happened to see that post, and I was so taken by it. It is absolutely beautiful. Would you be willing you. to read that right now so that our listeners can hear it, whether they're addicts sure. or partners? Absolutely. The intimacy anorexia widow, she is your neighbor, friend, or coworker. The intimacy anorexia widow is your child's pediatrician, the police officer who told you that your taillight is out, or your yoga instructor. She is college educated or only has a high school diploma. She is a judge, but you don't know she lives in a home where she is criticized and judged. She is your mother or grandmother, and you can't see her pain. Her shame, fear, and anxiety are hidden beneath the veil of bravado or being a happy helper. See a widow. She is affluent and travels abroad on business, but she is emotionally bankrupt. The man she loves has swindled her out of a life of emotional security and placed her so far in the red she can't even see a way out of the pain and darkness. A simple touch to her hand fills her with hope, and it is a crumb she must hold on to for days, weeks, months, or even years. She works at the local coffee shops and gives you your latte every Monday morning. She is the mom pushing her toddler in a stroller at the zoo, but you can't see that she was walking aimlessly in pain because she was crying on the bathroom floor all night so as to not wake her family. The intimacy anorexia widow is your child's school teacher, coach or the PTA chairperson. She sits next to you in church, synod, or mosque. She 
She's always the first to get on a bus as she heads off to university in Lonelyville, USA. She has stomach aches every day. She stares out of the window of a bus, airplane, or trolley. She's both numb and keenly aware of their patterns now. She still ponders, when did he start slipping away? She keeps an app on her phone or marks her appointment book tracking the last time they had sex. He slipped into the abyss, but when and why, she wonders. What did I do this time? He gaslights her. The blame and manipulations harden her. She questions, am I anorexic too? The intimacy anorexia widow does not share because she thinks you won't care, but rather she thinks you won't get it. She doesn't want to answer why she stays because she's begged God to will her to leave. She got mad at God and she gave up on God. On the way to pick up her children from school, he yelled at her all the way there. She stumbles from the car having a panic attack. Gasping for air, she walks aimlessly alone. A kind old woman startles her from behind and offers her help. She blurts out, I'm having a panic attack. The kind woman envelops her in a warm motherly hug. She is racked with sobs. She never sees the woman again. She ponders, was this God's way to hold her in her pain? The intimacy anorexia widow's husband often holds her hand in public. He appears to attend to her every need. And like a gentleman, he is. He always helps her off her coat. At every function, he holds the newborn baby for what seems like hours. You think she's getting a break, but really, he's using the baby to avoid her. If he's busy with the kids, he doesn't have to touch her. You're jealous because her husband is always tinkering with their old cars. They don't have to pay a mechanic for repairs. You don't know she raged at him the night before, metaphorically drunk, asking, why, why, why are you out in the garage again? He holds the wrench more than he holds her. The intimacy anorexia widow feels like he died some time ago, way back when. She's been married for a couple years now or a couple of decades, alone. She is isolated in her pain. Date nights are but a distant memory. The flowers are dead and the chocolates have turned to dust. Her therapist calls her codependent. He's never heard the term intimacy anorexia. She no longer complains about the little things to her friends. She fears that if she opens up, all the built-up pain, rage, fear, and anxiety would erupt like a hot molten volcano. The intimacy anorexia widow makes a friend in the most unlikely places on a vacation alone in a coffee shop one cold winter morning in a desolate out-of-season vacation town in the mountains. Nestled by a warm fire with a nice hot cup of tea, she quietly asks the woman next to her, can you pass me some sugar? A friendship is born. She finds she's not alone. They help each other, taking those midnight calls and wiping away tears with words, I get you. You don't have to explain it to me. They walk through each and every week together, a text, a call, a cup of tea, and a hug that is so needed. A journey new and unknown is warmed by friendship because she's no longer alone. Love that. That is amazing because what you've really identified is that the intimacy anorexia widow is anybody. It could be anybody yeah. in your life. It can be you. And mm-hmm. how she's starving for that connection. So tell me yeah. a little bit about your journey. What actually propelled you to get healthy? Um, I think for me it was um, I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. I wanted to, um, I, knew, I knew what was happening to me because of my training as a therapist, so I knew 
I, and I already had PTSD, so I actually knew what was happening to me, and I went, why am I having PTSD? And I really hungered for health and healing, and, you know, it was one of those things where I just started working my own recovery um, and using not art in the beginning because my brain was just so dysregulated, and which I find in my partner clients when they do art. It's very um, disorganized, and even making a creative um, peace can be very difficult right away. So I knew that I needed connection. I knew I needed to be around other partners. And I just built my support system. And I literally, seven days a week, one day I would get a haircut. The next day I'd have a phone call friend. Another day I would have therapy. Another day I would go for a walk. Another day, you know, I would go to a support group meeting. And I just created a life and a lifestyle that's just centered around health and recovery. Um, and I was a very determined woman. I did not want to stay like that. Um, and so that was my journey. And when it was really, when I started getting creative again, when I started, um, you know, getting healthy and being, um, doing creative, like my favorite piece of art is to actually redo furniture and repurpose furniture. So when I started getting my mm-hmm. thoughts all out <laughs> my hammer and you know when I started creating again um I I went I'm going for it and that's actually what was the precipice um made me decide to push through with my ultimate dream to have my wellness center um and every almost every piece of furniture in there has been either repurposed or a found object or you know like I'm in the process of making a a door um into a coffee station (laughs) you know so I know from my own journey of, of creating that wellness center, it's my way of giving back um, and of being that, that light, that lighthouse and that fog for those partners that are struggling. Um, and when I see them creating art, I know we're, we're hitting a really good stride. So, yeah. Well, absolutely. And so obviously one thing is you trusted your relationship with your higher power to have yeah. – created this idea with you, and you acted on it. I, I always say the universe mm-hmm. loves speed. So the minute you thought about it, you checked it out, and you wrote this poem. And you obviously help partners to get to their own feelings by creative art and yeah. a lot of poems and writings. Tell us a little bit more about that. So with the writing for me, that just happens to be one of my um, uh, callings, I guess it would be. And it really came out of writing this, that I really went, oh, wow, I really love to write. Um, Interestingly enough, you did call me Beth, but in my adult life, I'm only go by Elizabeth. However, I was actually named after three little women. Um, And so (laughs) my mother named me Beth, but gave me a full name of Elizabeth. And and it was all about writing and all of that. So that's just what I'm called to do. Um, I work with my clients to find whatever their creative outlet is. Um, You know, one person might want to do running. Another person might want to crochet. Another person might like to do public speaking. Or, you know, it's just whatever makes them feel fired up. You know, somebody else might love to garden. You know, I love to garden. I'm okay but it's not my wheelhouse. I don't have the patience for it. You know, I'd much rather rip apart furniture, um, you know, but, but doing that with my clients and helping them find their voice, their creative voice, 
um, is, like I said earlier, a marker that healing is really that, that, um, that trauma energy is finally leaving the body, that they're able to put two lines together or create something. And, I mean, the stuff that I see that my clients do just absolutely blows me away. Um, and I just feel so um, in reverence of, of the creativity that I see. Even though I don't do art therapy every single day with every single client, um, it's definitely something that I do as it's appropriate with a particular client and their treatment goals. Okay, and something tells me that you really um, operate from your intuition when it comes to the client. Very much. So, oh yeah, yeah, and obviously you're spot on. So, will you tell me about something that you talk about in your works? It's called responsive art making. What is that? Sure. So responsive art making, I didn't even know was a thing. I started doing it in grad school with a client, um, and I can speak about her. Um, because I did my thesis work on her. She was a, a victim of domestic violence for over 30 years. And she actually was at the domestic violence shelter I worked at and later came back when she was already out of the home. But once she knew I was there and doing art therapy, she actually came back to work with me for 10 months. And um, so as she would create, I would create pieces on the, whatever topic. She, she might be sewing something, but I might be doing a painting, but on the very topic that she was working on within that hour. And I would allow the, the metaphor, which is a piece of art therapy and unique to that um, therapy approach, that we use the, the metaphor, not the projection of what we believe somebody's work is, but what it's, it's symbolizing. And it's just not the, the product of it, but it's also the process of making. So I typically do, do that with clients that are further down the road. My clients that are um, early out of discovery or disclosure, I'm really present with them because they really need that attunement. They need the eye contact. They need somebody to really hold space as they're diving deep. And so as they move out of that, let's say they're in a spot where they're stuck, I might actually co-create with them, you know, and allow that to be informative. Um, but actually Bruce Moon, Dr. Bruce Moon um, was my clinical supervisor in graduate school, and he did a lot of work about, around responsive art making. Um, and it's just a technique that therapists can use, you know. It's, in, in, it's inherent in art therapy. So I use it. Um, like I said, I don't do it all the time, but, but as it's appropriate with the client who needs it. Okay, so touch a little bit about that. Now, is that different from regular art therapy? Um, so art therapy in itself is, is the marriage between art and psychology. So in my okay. undergraduate work, I, I majored in art therapy. So I literally had to take a full art regiment program. I also had to take training mm -hmm. in art therapy, and I also had training in, in psychology. So it's really a triple major. Um, and, but we're, we're blending all of those pieces together. Um, it, it's, you know, considered one of the youngest um, credentials out there. It's not a full licensure unless you're an art psychotherapist, but most people become, like me, a licensed professional counselor and become a registered art therapist. You know, so you have both pieces. Um, but it's a, it's a piece where um, I have the clients, it, 
they're working on something. One piece I do with my clients specifically, I call, I call it finding your triggers and putting them on the bus. So, and some people might actually draw a bus, but it's it's really about finding what their triggers are. And I might do a body drawing. They can do it on the floor. I might do an outline, or we might just do it on a table. And I call it like the gingerbread man. And then they find the parts of the body that's connected to the trigger. Um, and then we just do that. We just hold on to that piece. I keep it in my office and they fill it in. And they just, each week as they discover and uncover their triggers, and then we figure out which one's in the driver's seat. So that way they are getting in front of it and not getting, you know, literally run over by a trigger. Um, and I find it to be uh, una- just unanimously successful with every client I've done it with. So very powerful. Well, I bet. So when you say which trigger is in the driver's seat, give our listening mm-hmm. audience an idea of what some of those triggers might be that are in the driver's seat. Sure. So a trigger might be a, a person, place, thing. It might be a phrase that their spouse says. It might be a smell that they smell in a department store or a color of a car or a location on the street near their house. And as they discover those pieces, they go, aha, I know you're a trigger for me. So if they are having heart palpitations, if their armpits are sweating, their palms are sweaty, if they're feeling dizzy, short of breath, you know, I'm asking them to dive deep on identifying what their body's doing because I often find there's such a disconnect between their minds and their body. And I'm going, you know, because a lot of times, especially with that early trauma piece, there's almost a disassociation sometimes for some partners, not all, but that they get so disconnected from the body that I'm saying, hey, tune in, allow your body to be your friend. It's giving you information. So let's take that information and know it. So that way, and it's, it's literally like practicing. And we, each week we myopically look at one trigger and they go out and they work on that. Sometimes they can do multiple, but I try to keep it simple and not to overwhelm their system um, just to identify. And then we infuse that art therapy piece because then they can visualize it. They're seeing it in front of them. And they go, wow, I had no idea I had all of that. So if they have a day where, you know, they're getting their kids off to school, for example, and they're not getting help, and all of a sudden they're starting to find themselves getting angry, and they start, you know, shaking, and they're, they're, and they're going, oh, my gosh, I was shaking, and I was just trying to get my kids off to school. We then go in and dissect that, what's underneath that piece. And so we know that, oh, you need to self-advocate. You need to say hey to your spouse or whatever the living situation is, to I need some support or we need a better action plan the night before because maybe just the mere activation of rushing that post-traumatic stress energy is starting to shake them up a little bit. So that's what I mean by getting in front of it, identifying those triggers so that they then feel empowered to make really good, healthy self-care decisions. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a really difficult question because obviously sure. that's for people that can link after investigation what the trigger is with their with sure. old triggers and old needs. What happens if it's something that's um, unconscious or subconscious and they just can't figure out 
why they got triggered this morning, this afternoon, or this evening. What do you help them with? That's when that art therapy piece is so um, priceless because art therapy inherently it was a treatment modality that lends itself to working with trauma victims. And they talk, they talk about this thing called metaverbal communication. So in other words, your, you know, unconscious is not even, a, you know, fully aware, but you start doing that art and you start creating, it's, it comes alive right on the paper and it can be dead silent. And all of a sudden, most times, I very rarely have a partner that stays quiet. They literally start talking. Um, as they're creating, and they go, wow, and they're able to make those connections. Um, and it, sometimes there's early childhood trauma or just an old memory, you know, that might be connected to this trauma. So we tease that out. Um, and I'm always going at the client's pace. You know, I'm very attuned to that process with them. And like I said, we're myopically looking at something. Um, and we're looking at it in a way of, okay, you don't like the door open, and what does that have to do with, you know, X, Y, Z? And they may deconstruct that and go, oh, it was because something in my life, you know, this happened at an old job, or, oh, it's kind of, so the job gets pulled in there. You know, I'm a really big proponent. I won't go too deep into this, but parts work. And finding the different parts of self that are getting activated. So it might be an age. It might be a memory. It might be the current trauma. And then we put all those pieces on the paper and we figure out what the dance is, what dance is going on here. And I find that piece to be incredibly uh, empowering to my clients because then they can go, oh, gosh, I feel four, <laughs> you know, and they, they go, wow, I don't really want four running my life. And that really kicks them into gear to feel empowered of, okay, I know something old is getting triggered here so, and it might have to do with my present circumstance. So we triage both pieces, and then we figure out an action plan. And it's really the client's leading the way. I'm just, they're the captain of the ship. I'm helping point out the icebergs and maybe help move the sail. But they really are empowered to, to figuring this out. And I'd say we work well, well together in that way. Yeah, I would have to agree. One of the things that I know to be true is that, in a way, the subconscious and the unconscious actually protects the client from getting information right. too fast or too readily. So what I hear mm -hmm. you saying is that your art therapy really allows them some time to explore what intuitively they may know, but intellectually they don't. And when they bring it up from an intuitive place, it feels a lot safer and like something that they can then regulate and manage. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I said the word myopically. You know, we're, we're really dialing it down. We're taking a very small piece each session. Um, once they start getting good at it, it, it tends to naturally go a little quicker. But in the beginning, they're reteaching their mind and body to connect to identify. So I don't always, you know, go action plan, action plan, action plan. It's really sometimes beginning, we may spend some time just doing the identification um, because they can't activate change if they can't see it. Um, so that's why we do the art. And most times once they do see it, they're like, okay, I need to figure out how 
to manage this piece. And it's just like like you and I were talking about earlier. I'm really attuned to my clients. I'm very intuitive. And it's just that synergy in the moment. It just naturally becomes. And then if it feels like, hey, I can do something about this, then we come up with an action plan. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I love the fact that you as a therapist use a lot of creative tools to help make our partners feel safe so that they can oh, yeah. explore what's going on within them. And, you know, triggers are such a horrible and helpful um, experience. They feel so out of control, yeah. but they really are there to help protect our partners. So now let me ask you something, because you definitely believe that the antidote for getting better is self-care. And I love the fact that you say you don't necessarily need to rely on the addict, but what you do have to do is develop a healthy network of women to be your family of choice and your fellowship and your supporters. So tell me more about that. So um, I pull from um, the book by Mari Lee and and Stephanie Carnes, um, Facing Heartbreak. I love the safety shield done in there of creating, Mm -hmm. you know, what, you know, figuring out um, who your go-to people are, um, positive affirmations, and, you know, really having – some healthy self-care built in. Um, I would say I I hear often, I heard your voice in my head, self-care, self-care, self-care. I really should make that my middle name at this point because I do it all the time. To me, it's you're training, you know, a person is training their brain to go from a trauma mind into a self-care mindset. And so even making that leap, we have to work through any issues that might be in their way around self-care, any old, um, you know, deconstructing any old messages. You know, if if a woman is a parent, there might be mom guilt, you know, and figuring out ways of making peace with those things, deconstructing and then reconstructing, as I say, with my clients. We need to reconstruct a new self-care map. And and self-care map doesn't mean spa days every day. Um, That might be a wonderful goal but it might be something as simple as a walk and, you know, maybe listen to your podcast or reading a book or, you know, doing some art if they're, if that energy can move them to do that. Um, so I really just figure out with them what is their best map for self-care, but usually pretty much out of the gate, I'm encouraging clients to, you know, really dig a little deep on that one and figure it out because if they're in a, let's say, a, a situation where maybe there's a lot of gaslighting going on, I really want to help my client train themselves to go, oh, there's gaslighting? A, recognize that there's gaslighting. B, deconstruct the gaslighting and know that it's not about them. And then C, just go, oh, my gosh, you're doing gaslighting. Well, golly, i got to go do some self-care. And I know I can make it sound very easy, but once clients finally get that piece and they come in, the fire in their eyes is just breathtaking of them looking at me going, well, this is what happened, and I went and did self-care. And then they tell me what self-care they did. I just literally could bring me to tears at times um, because I see the growth and the strength 
that emanates from my clients when they can finally get to that point. And I really see self-care, for me personally as a clinician, I see self-care as the number one tool for healing of all kinds, all kinds of self-care. I think you mentioned earlier, getting a good night's rest, you know, eating healthy, finding out what your creative outlets are. And for one person who maybe the person is more analytically minded and wants you know, more of that science mind, maybe they like to do science projects with their kids, you know, or they like to crunch numbers or they want to volunteer somewhere and maybe help a small nonprofit with their bookkeeping because that's what they creatively that energy moves them. You know, it doesn't always have to be the fine arts or gardening or sewing or whatever. It can be all sorts of ways of whatever um, lights that person inside. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And I, like you, feel like self-care is imperative to good mental health, physical health, emotional health, and spiritual health. Now, what do you personally do to help women to connect to other women? So I encourage them, you know, certainly I have a therapeutic support group that I run. Um, but if somebody is of the 12-step mindset and would like to do something, you know, if there's a good healthy COSA, area, COSA group in the area or Essanon, um, and also some people who perhaps belong to a church or synod or mosque, you know, that they have some sort of uh, uh, spiritual practice that maybe they do some sort of study with other women, um, and connect, you know, and it doesn't have to be necessarily even on being a partner of sex addiction, but they're just getting attunement from other people or women in their life and having that eye contact and that validation that they matter, that it needs to come from somewhere. If there's a deficit in the home, that needs to be fulfilled in a way that's appropriate healthy with boundaries and with other people, um, but in a way that it's nourishing. I think that for me telling my clients to do that, it, it's got to be within those parameters that it's emotionally, you know, healthy, that it's morally and ethically in line with who they are, um, but that they create pockets in this world for themselves where they get that emotional nourishment and, you know, emotionally and even physically for some women, it might even just be getting a massage. Now, not all people like massages. Some people don't like to get touched. So that might not be for them, but you know, that they're creating that healthy stuff for themselves. Um, And even some women might even start, you know, I know, I think Essanon, they can start a group if they want to. You don't have to have been in for a certain amount of time. If there's, one needed in an area, people can start those groups. And that's not a therapy group as much as it's just 12 steps, um, but it is something that they can do for themselves. Yeah, and absolutely, I 100% endorse the fact that, you know, there's a certain synergy in getting support from other people so that you don't feel like you're all alone. And, And certainly with the Intimacy Anorexia Widow, that's a person that hides what's going on, doesn't feel yeah. her feelings because yeah. it's not safe. And, you know, right. we tell the addicts, be authentic, honest, and transparent. And yet yeah. I find that partners want to hide what's going on in their life, not so much for them, but for their addicts or their family members. And so they don't feel like they can be real because they don't want to out 
their environmental situation. And so with a group of people that they can trust that are real. Yeah. It's, it's that, you know, we find with partners, you know this, that when there's been such uh, wounding and such betrayal, they, they start to look at the world as an unsafe place to be in. And, and finding people to connect to is, I believe, a very huge step. It takes a lot of courage to do that. But that, you know, and you know that just because they connect with, like, a church group, for example, they don't have to disclose all that they're going through. But they certainly can do a prayer, be in a prayer group and say, you know, I've got some things going on in my life that I'm really struggling with. Can you support me in prayer? And people will do that, you know, out of the genuineness and kindness of their heart. Um, You know, and I always tell my clients, it's an opportunity to set boundaries, to practice boundaries. You don't have to share every thought, feeling, and experience. You know, until you know and truly feel safe in any given situation. And to me, that in and of itself is a form of self-care. It's learning how to have healthy set boundaries with people and knowing what's safe and not safe to share. Um, and that you one can take their time in doing that process. Yes, 100%. And so, obviously, you have women that are staying with the addict, whether he mm-hmm. or she is in good recovery or not such good recovery. And then you've got Correct. women that have chosen to get out of their own crazy-making situation so that they can really focus on them. Do you find Absolutely. that there is a – yeah, do you find that there there are more women that – Stay or more women that leave? Um, personally, what I've experienced is more women stay. Um, and I That's think the too. reason for that, yeah, I think the reason for that is once they really get some solid footing, they get that safety and stabilization piece in place, and they say to themselves, hmm, okay, what is yours and what is mine? How can I separate myself out of this? Sometimes there can be that emotional divorce, and we often hear there was life before disclosure discovery, and it's life after disclosure, disclosure recovery. And I find that women, once they get through the initial trauma and they recalibrate and they, they're feeling a little bit more healthy, they tend to make decisions because they finally come to the understanding that their spouse has a disease. It's a disease. And when they see them as, you know, this person with the disease versus a choice to be, quote, unquote, a bad person or sick, you know, they can then have empathy, a little compassion. You know, the very thing that partners crave so badly from their spouses, that attunement, that empathy, that when the partner gives it to their spouse, I often see some shifts happening in relationships because it's like, oh, and they're also modeling it, I think, sometimes for the sex addict. You know, this is what empathy um, looks like. This is how it's done. And then when that, that energy comes back and forth between the coupleship, you know, that's the beauty. That is that richness where they start letting go of the old patterns and letting go of what didn't work and really look at themselves going, hey, I, I don't I want to go back over there. I want to. I want to do this great stuff that we're doing now. So they, it becomes this teamwork and this um, 
focused for the future, but working in the here and now. Oh, absolutely. And for our listening audience, I want to remind everybody that I'm talking with Elizabeth A. Poth, P-O-T-H. Is that, am I saying the last name right? It's, it's Poth, and everybody says Poth. So, yeah, it's Poth. Yeah, that's okay. It's Poth. Elizabeth A. Yes. Post, we've never had the pleasure of meeting, I don't think, but she is a licensed no. professional counselor. She's a registered art therapist, and she is a certified sex addiction therapist, so she understands sexual addiction. And you are getting your training as an APSAT, right? You've gotten the training, and yes. now you're so, in the midst of certification? Yeah, so I'm at, literally at the tail and like I have a few hours of super, literally a few hours of supervision left for my CSAT, and I'm all done with my AppSet stuff. So before the end of the year, all of that will be done. Um, but I, I have you know certainly clinical training, but I've got you know 30 years lived experience um, that um, I think lends knowledge that I perhaps wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, but yes, I'm at the tail end of those those pieces. Well, and so what I am referencing is the same thing that I really believe about myself. We have the best of both worlds. We've been educated on both what it's like to be an addict and what it's like to be a partner. And we know the the techniques that work. And certainly our clients teach us as much as we already know. So I oh, want to know yes. from you, you know, you facilitate Hate art therapy and creative art workshops. When's your next workshop? So I'm going to be doing my next workshop in March. It's going to be a three-day workshop. And this kind of workshop mm-hmm. is really geared around what I do with my clients, but, but on a longer stretched period where we're deconstructing um, old ways of uh, and old habits around self-care, maybe family of origin messages, any current things. And every piece of this process is all going to be done through the creative arts. So it will be done with art therapy, psychodrama, and just a real quick explanation. Psychodrama is almost reenacting certain parts of our life or parts of self that we want to look Mm -hmm. at. And we have uh, in a group setting and and different participants will do that. I uh, had the privilege of training on under um, Ron Anderson, trained under Moreno himself. So I and Ron had written a book on um, family constellation work and psychodrama combined. Um, but that, and then doing things like dance and movement, you know, connecting the body, um, but lots of things, you know, where it's useful, practical tools that each person can take back into their everyday life, that they go into a workshop to let go of any residual pieces of what was getting in their way. And this is not about doing, you know, super intensive work as much as it's doing more gentle approach because I think self-care really needs to be gentle. So I'm just asking people, hey, let's just look and deconstruct some of these pieces and let's reconstruct and have an action plan. You know, and then I can talk with their therapist about any new tools or things that they've learned in the workshop. That's so amazing. That's set for March. I don't have the exact date yet. March. Yeah. And now, you know, your your business is, is an unusual name. Tell us a little bit about your business and how can people get a hold of you? 
Absolutely. The name of my business is Odnata Wellness Center, um, and Odnata is actually the scientific name for dragonfly and damselfly. Um, and universally, cross-culturally, be a symbol of transformation. Um, and in my own personal journey, I, I, it was very uncanny how I had lots of dragonflies all the time. My kids even blown away. Like I'll have dragonflies that look like a, the size of a small bird that will fly right in front of me. Like this happened so regularly for me during the spring and summer months. Um, and if people want to get a hold of me, they can look me up on O-D-O-N-A-T-A wellnesscenter.com. Um, or they can phone me at 414-639-2441. Um, and, and I can be connected through my info page on my website. Um, and then I'll have other um, blogs on there around, you know, other poems that will show up. That's just one of my, I think, contributions to this world. You know, like you do your, your radio podcast. Other people are writing books. This is just one piece that I'm offering the, the sex addiction and partner community of giving voice um, to maybe parts that have – are being presentative in a creative way, but touching a really deep and soulful parts of people. Well, you're doing great work. And Elizabeth Post, I so thank you for contributing tonight and showing um, our partners and even addicts as they wish that maybe their partner could learn some additional ways of feeling authentic. Because I find that yeah. the addicts are very motivated. They they know the damage that's been caused, and they want to see their partners healthy. So I so appreciate that you're not just doing talk therapy. You're also using Mm -hmm. that creative part of of them to bring out what needs to happen to be whole. So thank you so much for your contribution. Yeah. And thank you, Carol, for having about me on. Other work that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So again, they can okay. reach you at odonawellnesscenter.com. Yeah, or they can email you at info at odonawellnesscenter.com. Your phone number is 414 And I've been talking with Elizabeth A. Post who has made it her mission to help you connect to yourself and to understand why life was so difficult as an intimacy anorexic widow. So thanks again. Thank you, Carol. It's been such a pleasure to connect with you tonight. Always. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So, again, that woman obviously has a lot to offer our community. And take a look at her website. Uh, She is somebody who believes, as I do, that psychodrama, art therapy, journaling, creative writing are all ways to identify with your authentic self. Hey, I'm Carol the Coach, and I am here to help you get to know yourself better and, and find that true meaning because you've gone through so much suffering. And as Patrick Karn says, it is that suffering that will create great things if you allow that to happen. That's that 12-step work when you give back. 
and obviously Elizabeth has given back, and, and I'm going to challenge you to think about ways that you can give back too. But if you need to connect and find some people that really understand, then self-care is the way to do that. And as I say at the end of every show, hey, there will only be one of you at all times. So fearlessly have the courage. And we will catch you back here next week, same time, same place, for Sex Health with Carol the Coach. Make it a good one. Talk to you later.